Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the disease on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. May God bless his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin the message. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the blessing of your revealed word. We pray that we become those that our hearts are lifted immediately upon the hearing of it. Our desire is to honor you with the obedience to the law, the truths that you share, because of the truth shared with us, the, the, what the work you have done in bringing the gospel to our hearts and causing us to accept it to give us the faith to believe. Father, please give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that desire you above all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's message is entitled, Bitterness Binds Us, excuse me, Blinds Us from Seeing God's Work. In trying to get your you're thinking around this, this idea of being blinded. I thought I would ask if you've ever experienced tunnel vision, ever in your life. And some of you may be thinking, well, isn't that a term that really is isolated to the, uh, the, the confines of, we hear it in, I should say, maybe a better way to say it, of law enforcement. Isn't that that phenomena where uh, danger is experienced by a police officer? and their vision ahead of them moves in, inward. It's an inward collapsing of their vision so that their vision focuses more and more intently, and they lose that, that peripheral vision because the, the intensity of focus based on the danger has caused a tunnel of vision instead of the full range of vision that God has designed our eyes to be able to see. And so you, it's possible that you would say, well, that's isolated to law enforcement. And so I, I want to challenge you. Do you suppose it could happen in your career, in schooling, in relationships, in sports, where it's not danger? It's an overriding need, certainly an overriding desire. In the Bible, 
Rather than it being called tunnel vision, on a spiritual level, it's, it's called or referred to as spiritual blindness. And in re- rather than it being a side or inward from the sides collapse of our vision until we get to a tunnel, in spiritual blindness, it is a downward collapse. Rather than us focusing on the earthly and seeing it through the lens of the heavenly, there is a collapsing downward until all we can see in front of us is the earthly perspective. And the heavenly is moved out. It is obscured. It is not in view. Today, we will see a means by which we can God uses certain things to help us realize that we are experiencing spiritual blindness. And it would be good, it would be neat, certainly if you have a spouse that is, you know, you've got a relationship that is gentle with, they can give you a, a loving elbow or a soft word to kind of start to reach you by way of asking questions that are probing that might suggest, it might look like you're, you're your vision, your perception of the situation is a little askew. But in addition to that, or if you don't have that scenario, we can look at our sinful emoting or emotions and know that there is a possibility by way of our sinful emotions as it relates to that which God has ordained in our lives at the time that we are experiencing spiritual blindness, that we are experiencing a one perceptive perception angle of the situation. And that angle is only the immediate, the physical, the worldly, the earthly that remains in front of us. And we, we have blocked any understanding of God out. Or at least we've minimized that perception. If you'll take a look at your bulletin, our takeaway today, As we deal again with the the title of this message, Bitterness Blinds Us from Seeing God's Work, our takeaway is our bitter attitude toward God's sanctifying work in our lives reflects our spiritual blindness and our need for God's continual or continuing sweetening. And when you hear the word sweetening, you might put a a line over to it or, or next to it in brackets, God's transforming work in and through our hearts. It's his, the sweetening is the transforming that God does in and through us. So we take a look, we start today, and as we look at only six verses in Exodus chapter 15, we start in verse 22, and we're going to move all the way through 24. We're going to see here that the first point to be made is we're moving from, we'll see the Israelites move from watchful travelers a good place, unfortunately, to grumblers. That attitude of bitterness because of what they're facing. Let's take a look at this in verse 22. It says, then. Well, then must have meant something came before it. I want to remind us that God, that the Israelites have seen God. They're standing on the east bank of the Red Sea, having witnessed, observed, God use a wall of water to allow them salvation, passage through the Red Sea. God used that same wall of water to destroy their enemies. And thus they have salvation. They are headed to the promised land. 
by way of God's route, and they know that their, their enemy has been defeated. They lie dead on the banks of the Red Sea. And so we can see that God has done this work, and what happens next is they break out with Moses leading the men and Miriam leading the women in a chorus and a hymn, and we saw that in the, in the, the first parts of chapter 15, and, and think about that. Think about your first experience as it relates to your salvation and how joyful you were at your salvation and how much you wanted to share with people, wanted to stay in that place. And could I always not feel this level of joy and this awesomeness that I recognize that God did something in me that I couldn't do? And then reality. Reality of an earthly world, a sin-cursed world, a wilderness of a world, a culture that screams it is the wilderness that these, Egypt, these Israelites are facing. We face the same type of wilderness, if you will, a barrenness of God. Our culture wants nothing to do with God. They want to remove God from it. And so our perspective starts to change, and we can be like these Israelites. Let's follow now and see what's going on and see if we can't see ourselves in what they, have, what they are processing, unfortunately, wrongly processing. It says, then Moses made, or, caught, or actually it says made. I want to share with you, in studying this passage, these six verses, there is a verb in here. There's a form of a verb in here so many times that it, it just catches your attention. This verb is hardly ever used in Hebrew. It's rarely used. I'll, I'll put it that way. It's not hardly ever, but it's rarely used. The idea of the verb is to put causation, assign causation. Who is doing it? Make it very clear who is the focus of the doing. And so when we say, it says here, then Moses made, the made is added by the, tra- by the uh, translators of this Bible into the ESV. And it's a good translation because to us, we hear made. Oh, this is Moses doing the action. But I'm going to show you at different parts of this, you're not going to see the word made. And the same thing is occurring by way of, of there's a causation. There's somebody behind this force. So watch this. Then Moses made or caused the Israelites to set out from the Red Sea. And they went he, Moses had two other options of more common verbs to use for went. It would just be like a narrative. I went over there, I went over here. He didn't use that one. What's happening here is Moses is making it clear that he is, he is taking lead. Remember, he's, a, he's the author writing about himself. He was given the role of leader to lead these people out, to lead them out. He's the, he's the, the, the representative of God who is dependent upon God. We have God in the form of the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of, of smoke by day. But Moses is the, the, the human being that God is working to to, to to lead these people out. And now he takes his leadership. It's time to go. We need to move away from the Red Sea and move inward we need to, to move into the wilderness, a place that you, you, Red Sea, wilderness, Red Sea, I think I'll stick around by the Red Sea. You can see the context there immediately that it's Moses that's going to be the focus of things when things go south. And yet, when he says, and they went and they use, he uses the word yatsah, that, that, that verb, that's the verb we keep hearing, which means exit, to exit. It's, a, it's the, where they get the understanding of the the title of the book, The Exodus. 
the great departure. Moses is making sure that, oh, although I'm the focal point here, I'm the one that did the causing, and this is, again, God having him write it this way, that God is in the picture. God's behind this. God's the one actually bringing about the exodus. I'm just the, the human representative. But let's see how this plays out. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went, or they exited, into the wilderness of Shur. You know, we don't always understand the words of titles, of names, but it's neat when we can see it based on other uses and, and, and whether it's in the Bible, in, in what we would consider inter-Bible understanding of it, or we use the external, that which was used and we found in archaeology. The wilderness of Shur can be translated this way, and maybe we would start to see things a little bit different with this understanding. It's the wilderness of traveling watchers. You're going out into the wilderness. They've named this place the wilderness of traveling watchers. If you're going into the wilderness, you're going out to where the bandits, the robbers, the danger, the hardship, the lack of water is. It's a hard life. You better be a group of watchful travelers or you're going to find yourself in big danger. But is that really what is happening here with our God in the, in the form of a taking or manifesting his presence by way of a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke? Is that really this danger, what they should be watching for? Or should it be that they should be watching for the might of our God? Think about this. Think if you, if when we, lead, we go home and they say, okay, you got to go home now, and, you, and what's going to lead you to your house is a pillar of, of cloud. And, by, and if you were to go by night, it'd be a pillar of fire. Would you be like, i got no worries. I'm just following God and all of his might manifested in this huge pillar that can be seen by a lot of people. You could see the power, but they're not watchful travelers. Let's continue on. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Moses kept going back at the direction of God, and sometimes he takes his brother Aaron to do this. He keeps going back to Pharaoh and saying, release us. We need to go three days' journey out into the wilderness, and we need to worship our God. They're three days into the wilderness. There's no place to worship their God because there's no water. They have a real need. This isn't a fake out. This isn't something that you go, well, they could have, you know, no, just toughened up a little bit. They're in need of water. It's a real need. You and I will face real needs, real physical, real earthly world needs out in this wilderness. We know them. So don't make, it's, it's not, I, don't, I want to make sure I'm not coming across as making light of. This is a reality. They have a real need. And it's this need that causes this collapsing of their vision this spiritual blindness because they're overwhelmed by this physical need for sustenance. I need water or I will die. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Now, let me ask you a rhetorical question. Do you think it was named bitter for our benefit in hearing this story so many thousands of years later, 
only, it was only named bitter because the water was bitter? Or is there a possibility that more is going on behind the scenes on the spiritual level with bitterness as demonstrating through grumbling? So we look at this and it, it continues on in verse 24. And the people grumbled. The idea is murmuring. Murmuring is whether it's, it's uh, audible, you can actually hear somebody make words of complaint, or it's just the sound. You know, the old, oh, really? I got to do this? You know, all of the stuff that goes on where you just look at the person, back at them as they are murmuring behind you, and you, their murmur said enough that the, I mean, almost exceeded the words because the disgust you heard with it. That's the idea, and it's continuing. How about leading this group of people? And all they're doing is murmuring. Three days back, you saw a wall of water, and that allowed for you to be able to walk through, and you saw that same wall destroy the, your enemy, and now you come to water, and you think the God who was able to do that with water can't do something with this water? This is where they are. Their, their, their vision their, their has collapsed so much that all they can see is, I need that water to be pure. I need it sweetened. I need it now. That's all they're seeing. They've lost sight of their God in the midst of it. And they say this, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? I was talking recently to a, a couple, and I said, you know, it's, we were going over how much is actual verbal in communication and how much is uh, nonverbal cues or tone or attitude. Come on. Do you think they said, Moses, what shall we drink? <laughs> yeah, no. It's, oh, come on. What are we going to drink? Do you, he, you could just hear the sinful attitude. I said all the There was nothing sinful in the words I used. Oh, come on. There was everything in your attitude. It's a grumbling attitude. The Bible even told us it is. That's what's going on here. So let's gain some perspective for us. You and I are currently on a journey of sanctification. We've had our salvation experience. We've been at the top of the joy, understanding the first point, that moment in time salvation, when God changed us, overwhelmed with enthusiasm, and now he has us walking this journey of sanctification. And it's hard. It's hard in a marriage because you find out how sinful you are and how prideful you are. It's hard doing it alone as, a, as an individual not being married. It's hard in these situations when you're dealing with people that are not saved and they just want to attack you. Sanctification is difficult. It's not easy. But we're to go through sanctification not as grumblers, but as watchful travelers. Can you say that the last time that, that you got in that difficult situation, I know you don't need to look further than a week's time back, that you saw yourself as one of these watchful, watchful travelers looking for, what's God going to do with this? I mean, this is tough, but man, I can't wait to see what God's going to do with this. The tougher it is, the bigger my God is. How, how is he going to handle this one? Or did you fall to grumbling? like most of us typically do. Are we watching for God's leading in our lives, or are we blinded by earthly difficulties in our lives? 
Do we see people as objects, and I might say justified objects of our grumbling? Oh, you don't know what this person's done to me. (laughs) They deserve all the grumbling they get from me. I've dealt with this person long enough. This person's stuff is bad enough. I'm justified in my grumbling. Do we see people, even sinful people, as justified as objects of our grumbling, the recipients of our grumbling, or we de- do we see even those people who are sinning against us as instruments in our Redeemer's hands, changing, ca- causing us to confront the external, excuse me, the internal based on the external? That's a hard place to be, but it's a reality we need to see. God is using everything in your sanctifying and your being sanctified. He's using even sinful people bringing injustices against you to sanctify you and me. Are we grumblers or are we watchful travelers? Well, let's take a look at point number two, from bitterness to sweet faith. We take a positive turn here. We get to see God do what God does. In fact, all the verbs change and now it's God doing the causing. Watch this. And he, Moses, cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him. That's the same use of the word, and, and the, the translators didn't put it, but I think it's helpful to have it. It would be, and Yahweh caused him to see. It's Yahweh's opening his eyes. And it's even furthermore, the use of that particular word in this context is not like he caused him to see like, there's a log, and it just appeared. It's like, a, it's, it's, it's everyone else, it's a mirage, but he can see it. No, it's not that. He's giving him, causing him to see by way of instruction. And you might say, well, that's, it's not really that big of a deal. If he would have just made a log appear, that would have been a bigger deal. When was the last time you heard God give you instructions audibly, or at least directly, mentally, acknowledging his presence in some manifest way as Moses here. I'm going to tell you that he doesn't work that way as he did with Moses. That's because he has given us all the instructions in this book. We have God acting in the same capacity with us as he did with Moses. He is causing him to see by way of instruction. It would sound like this, Moses, Do you see that stick over there? I want you to throw it in that water. It says that he caused Moses to see. That's why you see the the showing. It says that, um, you'll notice I called it a stick and not a log. It could be, the, the word there in Hebrew could mean stick. It could be branch. It could be log. It could be tree. I don't think the the miracle is in the fact that Moses picks up this honking tree trunk and and chucks it into into the pond and something happens. No. The miracle is that what God is doing through that stick which symbolizes his transforming work. That's all the stick's value is. If you're a naturalist, you say, oh, if I could only find that stick, I could make a million bucks because those sticks make water sweet. And you miss the whole point. If you try and explain things away, 
You try to explain them through natural means. You miss the supernatural. You miss what God intends. God is the one who transforms. It's not a natural thing that happens in us. It's a supernatural thing that happens to our hearts where God can transform our hearts away from bitterness. Let's continue on. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. In other words, the water was transformed into something now what the theologians like to call potable water, usable water, drinking water. There Yahweh made for him, excuse me, for them a statue. A statue is like a precept, a principle. We don't use that word very much. And a rule. And there he caused them to be tempted. Yahweh is the one that made sure they ended up right there at that bitter water, uh, pool of water so that they would be tested. Is he doing this out of spite to them? No, he's loving them. He's growing them. They've got salvation understood, at least from a physical perspective. Some of them are, in fact, saved. Now they need to learn what it looks like to trust God, to be sanctified by God, to rely less and less on themselves. They, they are moving from bitterness, where they're only focused on that which they can see, and hopefully by example of Moses, they're moving to a, a place of sweet faith. It continues here. It says in verse 26, saying, and this is what God says. He's giving them instructions, further instructions. He says this, if you will di- diligently listen, the word there is shema, shema. Remember the, uh, when you guys may have heard this before, we, we talk about it, the shema is in Deuteronomy where God says, Hear, O Israel, hear that the Lord thy God is one. And, and, and theologians and, and a lot of people will know, oh, that's the Shema. That's all based on the one word, the one verb, listen or hear. It can be translated either way. When you put those two words next to each other, we've, we've learned this, that that means when you put two verbs together, that means there's greater significance than just the one. So you see here... In Hebrew, it actually says Shema, Shema. In English, we translate it as diligently listen, really listen, carefully listen to the voice of Yahweh your God. And do that is that which is right in his eyes. Hyperlink back to the Garden of Eden. Hyperlink. Doing what is right in God's eyes is, taking, is not taking from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It is relying on God. Doing what is right in your own eyes, which we hear over and over in judges that they did, and they spiraled down into depravity. That's what Adam and Eve did when they picked the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They said, I'll be the determiner of that. So we can see here this, God is trying to to get this people to understand. I want you to understand that the Israelite nation is referred to by God himself as my firstborn child in Exodus 4.22. Adam failed as the, as, the, as the first. Now Israel, as a nation, is supposed to carry the message of salvation by way of obedience to God, to all the nations. And we see them failing. We see them grumbling. They, they can't even trust God. One event after their salvific experience at the Red Sea, how much they are like us. How quickly in our immaturity of our faith do we fall to that? 
And he says, and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments. That give ear, the understanding is the way it's written in the Hebrew. It's a superlative. What's a superlative? Nick, you're getting all eggheaded on me. That just means it's the highest degree. So he's upped it from li- really listen to give ear, and he means like you've never listened to before. The highest listening you're capable of, that's what I need you to do. That's what I call you to do in my commandments. And to keep all his statues. I will put none of his diseases on you that I may put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh, your healer. So let's take a lesson from Moses. Let's take a step back and look at these these, uh, few verses and answer the question, how do we move from bitterness to faith? I'm willing to bet if I actually ask you all to raise your hands if you've ever been bitter because God is bringing you through a difficult situation, we would have all the hands go up. And if we didn't have all the hands go up, either that was an innocent child or I need to spend some special counseling with somebody to let them know that we've all experienced bitterness. It's, 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 unfortunately, it's a place where we default to unless God has given us the mercy that extended his, his grace to transform us. So let's see what Moses did that we need to do as it relates to move from bitterness to sweet faith. What did Moses do? He cries out to God for his supernatural work in this transformation of this water. What are we called to do? Cry out to God for his transformational work in our hearts. Please change, please change my heart. Give me a heart that doesn't want to be bitter. Give me a heart that loves you, that wants to be a watchful traveler instead of a, a crybaby grumbler that didn't get what he wanted in in his timing, and it was too hard, and I don't like difficult things. Make me into that man of God or woman of God that appreciates that the hard things are brought into my life out of love for me so that I can be transformed. Second thing we do, we follow God's instructions or his precepts with meticulous obedience. Why do I say meticulous? Are we perfect in how we do it? No. But a lot of times we're not perfect because we didn't even listen to it. How many times, husbands, I'm going to speak to you first, has your wife spoken and she goes, did you even hear me? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you said, and she's like, not even close, husband, not even close. Half the time we don't obey because we never listened clearly to what was being told of us. That's what we need to do is listen meticulously, look at the commandments and see, am I really grasping what I'm called to do. And I know you've heard this cliche, but it is true. Partial obedience is no obedience. It's disobedience. So we don't get weighed on our uh, level of obedience as far as God's desire for our life. Obedience to his laws bring about a peace in our lives in the midst of the storm or the difficulty. Partial obedience just gets us a little bit further and we realize the full weight of the difficulty again until we realize, oh, I should probably give God full obedience. Number three, look at the spiritual or sanctification aspect. Or at least beg God to show you it in prayer. God, show me what you want me to to be taught in this. That's a beauty that I've heard a number of you come to me. This is my difficulty. What am I supposed to see? I'm overwhelmed by the difficulty. Can you help me see? In other words, my vision has been collapsed. 
I'm looking and I'm relying on the, on the love of another saint to open up my vision to see what God is doing from heaven's perspective, from his perspective. It's a good thing to pray for and understand. And lastly, we place our trust, number four, we place our trust in our divine uh, supplier. He's the God that did transform the water so that it was now sweet and able to be drunk. And he is the God who is our, according to this passage, our divine doctor, the God who cares for us perfectly and our health. And we need to place our trust in him. Are we going through difficult times? Yes. Do we have sickness and illness? Yes, these bodies waste away. Is he perfectly caring for us in the midst of us? Yes, he is. If we'll recognize his care is perfect. He has whatever is occurring in our difficulties of our own health as those things that help us see we're relying on ourselves. We're not seeing God's perspective. And I have a need when my health has fallen. I have a need of God that I didn't have when I was chucking along without any, without any need. I now have a desperate need for my God. I can't get through tomorrow because of this or that. This is too painful. This is too, too whatever it is. God is our perfect doctor, even in the midst of illness. Let me leave, end with this as far as the bullet point, and I want to ask you a rhetorical question after this last bullet point. From, it's, the next one is, from the wilderness to the promised land. That's where he's moving them, and he's going to give them a snapshot or a picture of that because he is a gracious God to remind them, yes, you're in the wilderness, but you have the promised land to look forward to because I'm the promiser of that land. I'm the promiser of that kingdom. You will arrive because I'm able to keep my promises. I am the faithful God. And he says this in verse 27 in this snapshot. Then they came to Elam. Elam in, in Hebrew can mean a grove of trees. Where there were 12. And I have to tell you, a lot of times we miss numerology and sometimes we get kooky. With our numerology, we take it too far. I've listened to pastors teach on different things, and it's like, how did you get that? You got a spaceship coming down and saving us all because of, on this particular day, because of your, your misunderstanding of numbers. No, biblical, uh, biblical Hebrew numerology identifies significance with numbers to help further explain what is going on. Then they came to Elam, a grove of trees, in other words, where there were 12. 12 is a number that references God's completeness but it takes it from the perspective of God's authority and power to obtain that completeness. When we look at the 12 apostles or the, or the 12 tribes of Israel, it's the fullness of what? The completeness of who he's bringing in. Um, we see that the 12 tribes represent all of the people of the Old Testament. The 12 apostles and when the, the idea of the 12 disciples and the, and the 12 apostles basically, for, excuse me, basing it on the Old Testament understanding, we can see that there will be, a, as there was a perfect number of those saved, there, will, there is no, no worry of someone not getting saved. There is that same truth in the New Testament being as it applies to the grouping of the 12. And we see that borne out in Revelation when we see the elders fall down from their thrones. 
We see here that the 12, that's referencing the 12 springs, that which give life, is ultimately demonstrating God's perfect power and authority to bring about that which is life-saving, that water. And then we see 70. 70 is made up of two numbers, 7 and 10. That's the way the Hebrews would look at it. Seven is God's perfection. We see that when you see the number seven oftentimes, almost all the time, you'll see that it's trying to get you to see God is involved with something here. When you see the number 10, it also is a number of completeness, but it's completeness in how God brings it about. So you might say this, 70, combining the two understandings, means or equals the perfect spiritual order of God or ordering of God. God has given them this oasis, this grouping of trees with all the water they need to drink as a picture, as a snapshot of what he is going to finally do in bringing the perfect order of the promised land, this land of flowing with milk and honey. We can know this, and I don't know if you've ever considered this before, the church is a kingdom oasis. It's an Elam in the wilderness. Why? Because it's a garden-like picture. It's a garden outpost where believers can come in and experience the, the fullness as, of what we can experience on this side of eternity, on this side of the second coming, of what God has intended the kingdom to look like where you can be loved, known, you can share your fears, and you will not be condemned over them. You will be loved and counseled and, and brought through those difficulties. That's what the church represents. It's, a, it's a, a microcosm of the kingdom. It's an oasis of the kingdom in the midst of today's cultural wilderness. The church is a sweet taste of the reality of the fullness of God's kingdom yet to come. We need to, as you think about and think through the takeaway, we need to remember that our bitter attitude towards God's sanctifying work in our lives reflects our spiritual blindness and our need for God's continuing sweetening. Amen. I want to leave you with one biblical theological overview. I love biblical theology because it's the overview. It helps me see. I spend a, a, much of my my. Christian walk in the weeds, not understanding how to apply it to the bigger picture. And so I really appreciate biblical theology because it helps me see the bigger picture of God's plan of salvation. So let me ask you a question. If the stick has nothing to do with supernatural power, why did God use a stick to demonstrate his transforming work of sweetening the water so that it was no longer destructive and representing death, but now it represented life. Because it's a foreshadow of a stick in the form, two sticks in the form of a cross. That stick, that tree that Christ hung from was the tree, was the wooden sticks that would bring about the ultimate sweetening, the transformation from death unto life. 
What a beautiful foreshadowing that the very beginning of their journey, they had just crossed the Red Sea, and God uses that stick to, re- to let them know there's something that that stick represents that will carry greater weight later on. Don't know if they got it, but I know we got it. We got it in the perfect obedience of our Savior, Jesus Christ, willing to be hung on a tree, crucified on two sticks, crossing in the shape of a cross, I should say, so that we might know eternal life. Praise be to God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We do thank you for the beauty of that picture, the beauty of who you are and what you're doing, the humility of your son's willingness to obey and to be crucified, to be hung on that tree, that payment for that which Adam started in the garden in his rebellion against you by pulling a piece of fruit off of that tree of, of knowledge and good, the, the, excuse me, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that it started there with a, with a tree that went south, an action against a tree, and it ends with a willingness to get on a tree and hang from it, that your son would pay the price that we deserve for our sins. Praise be to God that you are a good and gracious God. Praise be to God that one day we will experience more than a mini garden, more than the oasis that is the church today in the midst of the the wilderness of this cultural disobedience. No, we will experience the fullness of the kingdom here on earth upon Christ's return. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.